Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from the Oncology Network. Welcome to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point series. Endometrial cancer is the most common gynecological cancer in Australia, and advanced disease and early onset disease are increasing. Today, I'm joined by Professor Linda Milishkin, Director of Medical Oncology at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, Australia. We're chatting about new treatment options, clinical trials and collaborative research efforts such as the Eden Initiative. We also discuss stigma, shame and society's silence around gynecological cancers. And just a reminder that healthcare professionals can access all of our podcasts for free by joining the Oncology Network. Head over to oncologynetwork.com.au. This is Rachel Babin and this is the Oncology Podcast. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point series. Hi, Rachel. It's lovely to be here. It's always nice to start by getting to know our guests a bit better. I understand you recently completed the Larapinta Trail. Can you tell us what that experience was like? Yeah, it was really fantastic. I can't actually claim that I did the whole Larapinta Trail because that, you know, actually takes a couple of weeks from end to end. But I did do five different sections of the Larapinta Trail as part of a fundraising walk for gynecological cancer research supporting ANSGOG, which is our cooperative group in Australia that runs academic trials in gynae cancer. Did you have lots of blisters? (laughs) (laughs) No, we had some excellent guides that were very good at taping up our feet and, you know, making sure as soon as anything was starting to develop, they would put on this special magic stuff that would stop us getting blisters. But yeah, it was very rocky. Yeah, there was a group of us. It was really fantastic because there was a couple of medical oncologists, me and a colleague, Jeff Go from Queensland. We had the only gynae nurse in, gynae cancer nurse in Tasmania. They only have one, surprisingly. And then we had some wonderful people who'd lost people to gynae cancer and also one gynae cancer survivor. And interestingly, although she had chemotherapy and surgery and things for ovarian cancer a year ago, she was like the fittest in the group and we were all having to try and keep up with her. Oh, wow. Gosh, that must have been quite a moving experience in some respects. Yeah, hearing all the different stories about why people were doing it and It was quite spiritual in a way. We had a fantastic guide who talked a lot about the country and the vegetation and, you know, some of the Indigenous stories, although she wasn't Indigenous. It was just amazing. Oh, it sounds incredible. Well done. So now we'll move on to what we're here to discuss today, which is endometrial cancer. For the broader audience, could you briefly set the scene for us? So how prevalent is endometrial cancer? What is the survival rate? Yeah, so endometrial cancer is actually the commonest gynecological cancer in Australia. So in Australia, we have around about 7,000 cases of gynecological cancer, and about half of those actually are endometrial cancer. So I think most people think ovarian cancer is the commonest, but actually it's endometrial cancer. And the survival rates are actually very good. So about 80% of women are, you know, alive and and likely cured five years after diagnosis. Okay, well, that's very heartening. We get quite used to hearing rather sobering survival rates on the podcast. It's nice to hear something like that. And have you noticed any sort of trends over the last few years? Are more women getting diagnosed with endometrial cancer or, or less women? Yeah, unfortunately, the both the rates of people getting endometrial cancer 
as well as the death rates have actually increased somewhat over time, which is quite concerning. So the rates of endometrial cancer have actually doubled in Australia over the last 20 years. And we think that it's getting more common, not just in Australia, but in other countries such as the US where, you know, we have problems with obesity, poor lifestyle and, you know, people having fewer children and having them later in life. Yeah, all these things seem to be actually driving more endometrial cancer in the community. That's an interesting global trend and perhaps, yes, slightly more sobering than what we were discussing before. So what are the risk factors for endometrial cancer? So some of the risk factors include things like obesity and diabetes, also having like a a longer exposure of the woman to estrogen throughout her life. So there's higher risks if women have never had children and have had a long period of having periods for a long time without ever having a break to have children. There's also a higher risk in a small percentage of people who have a, a genetic cause for developing endometrial cancer. There's a condition called Lynch syndrome, which is something that can predispose women to various cancers, but endometrial cancer is actually the most common one. It also increases the risk of things like bowel cancer and breast cancer. And we think it, you know, contributes to around 10 to 20% of cases of endometrial cancer. So what kind of genetic tests are available that can help identify women who are at higher risk? So in some cases, people at risk or families are identified because someone in the family develops cancer and then it becomes concerning that there might be something running in that family. And in a woman who develops endometrial cancer or or bowel cancer, often the test that's done is a test on the specimen that's been removed at surgery. They can do a special type of stain on the cancer specimen that suggests that there might be a genetic cause. And then if that flags after the initial surgery, then there can be follow-up testing done and ultimately a blood test to see if the person actually carries an abnormal gene that might be causing Lynch syndrome. And so what are the typical treatment options for women with endometrial cancer? So the main treatment's usually surgery with a hysterectomy and often removal of the ovaries and fallopian tubes as well. But there are an increasing group actually of younger women developing endometrial cancer who maybe actually are keen to preserve fertility. And in some cases, if people have pre-malignant changes, not yet endometrial cancer or what appears to be low-grade or early endometrial cancer, then some of those women may actually have an attempt at treatment with progestational agents. The classic one would be to insert an an IUD or a marina, as it's called, that releases local progestogen to see if it's possible to get the cancer to regress. And sometimes that also needs to be done with an effort to address obesity. So if, if women can lose a lot of weight and have that marina treatment, then sometimes the endometrial cancer will regress. But for most women, we're looking at hysterectomy and then depending on how advanced the cancer is, um, some women will need to have some follow-up treatment. How many women typically require more than the hysterectomy? 
Probably most women don't actually. And I think that that's one of the reasons why there's been much less research into endometrial cancer because the majority of women will actually be cured by hysterectomy. But there is a smaller percentage where the endometrial cancers become more advanced and infiltrated, you know, deeply into the endometrium and the wall of the uterus or spread to other areas such as lymph nodes and elsewhere that put that woman at much higher risk of relapsing afterwards. There's two types of risk of relapse. There's a risk of relapse in locally in the pelvis, but then there's also a risk of relapsing distantly and developing, you know, secondary cancers elsewhere. And so after each surgery, those all cases are discussed in a multidisciplinary meeting with um, gynae oncologists, medical oncologists and radiation oncologists and we reach a consensus about what follow-up treatment might be recommended. So in some cases, it might be some treatment with radiotherapy to lower the risk of the cancer relapsing in the pelvis or within the vagina, whereas in other more advanced cases, we might also be recommending some chemotherapy treatment. A bit like women with breast cancer often Mm -hmm. have follow-up chemotherapy following their surgery for breast cancer. And are there any other treatments that are on the horizon? Yes, well, pleasingly, you know, pharma is now more interested in endometrial cancer and we are seeing more drug development targeted at endometrial cancer, which is fantastic. So I think the molecular profiling has also been helpful to uncover targets in endometrial cancer. For example, that we have found that There are a percentage of endometrial cancers that overexpress HER2, a bit like everyone knows HER2 positive breast cancer. And so now we're seeing more trials in that space targeting HER2. It seems if you just use Herceptin alone, you know, the first drug that was developed in breast cancer, it's often not that active. But there are some newer antibody drug conjugates that are are showing some very interesting results in endometrial cancer, which has been really pleasing to see. There's also a range of sort of other targeted therapies that are being tested in the maintenance setting. So after women have completed chemotherapy, there's a range of different, quite a few trials now looking at different agents targeting, you know, things like the glucose pathway and aspects of the cell cycle. So we're very hopeful now that some of those things will show promise. And we're waiting also to get access on the PBS to, you know, combination with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. There are a couple of trials that have come out recently in advanced disease, which we usually treat women with carboplatin paclitaxel chemotherapy, but actually showing that if you add immunotherapy to that, you seem to get even bigger benefits, actually regardless of whether it's a Lynch syndrome-like cancer or not. So... That's very exciting and we can't wait to be able to access some of those therapies for our women. Oh, it's good to have something on the horizon that's exciting. I'd like to discuss the Adele trial now, which is a trial you're leading for ANSCOG. Can you talk us through the study and what you're hoping to achieve with that? Yes. So the Adele trial is a trial looking at testing the addition of immunotherapy to adjuvant therapies. And this is really building on the success of the PORTEC-3 trial, which Australia and ANSGOG was very involved with. And this is one of the pivotal trials that actually showed that women with high-risk endometrial cancer actually have a survival advantage if they receive adjuvant chemotherapy. 
but we know that still some women relapse. And we also know that a certain percentage of women, including those with Lynch syndrome or Lynch syndrome-like cancers, likely respond well to immunotherapy treatment. We've also learned from other cancers that sometimes combining immunotherapy with chemotherapy can have an an even greater impact. So in the Adele trial, we're basically looking at women who've been diagnosed with high-risk endometrial cancer, and then they're randomized to have the standard Portec 3-style treatment, which involves a combination of chemotherapy and radiation to the pelvis, followed by four cycles of adjuvant chemotherapy. And so women either have that with or without the addition of an anti-PD-1 immunotherapy, which is then continued for up to a total of a year's treatment. We're really hoping that that might further improve survival rates for, for women by adding that additional treatment. Fantastic. So how quickly are you expecting to be up and running and see some results? So we are up and running. The the trial is running in both Australia and New Zealand at a number of ANSCOG sites, but we've still got a way to go to complete recruitment. We're probably looking at still completing recruitment over the next 18 months, and then we will need to follow those women up over time so we can see what happens. So I suspect it's still several years away before we'll see the first results from Adele. And what should listeners do if they think they have a patient who would be suitable for the trial? Yes, so the best way is probably to look at the ANSGOG website, which is easy to find if you just search ANZGOG and then look at the section about open trials and you can find there a link to information about the Adele trial on the trial registry which shows you a list of the basic inclusion and exclusion criteria. And also on that website, you can see what sites are open around Australia. So we're still in the process of opening some sites, but we have now sites open in in most of the bigger states and also very pleasingly in New Zealand, which is fantastic because they've always been great recruiters to our ANSGOG trials because unfortunately they have some of the same lifestyle issues as we do in Australia and high rates of endometrial cancer. Fantastic. Thank you. We'll make sure we include links to the ANSCOG website. Aside from immunotherapy, are there any other new treatments being investigated that you're quite excited about? Yes. Well, I think some of the new treatments actually looking at giving less treatment, which I think is really important because one of the problems with giving all this adjuvant therapy is, you know, the side effects that, for example, chemotherapy and radiotherapy can cause. And there is a thought that probably there's a group of women who actually could be spared further treatment. And it's not been traditional in endometrial cancer to do molecular profiling, but now we know from the PORTEC-3 trial and analysis of those specimens that there's four different molecular subsets within endometrial cancer and particularly there's a subset called POL-E, so a small group of endometrial cancer, but cases of endometrial cancer with POL-E mutations very rarely seem to relapse. So ANSGOG's also participating in a trial called TAPER in collaboration with the Canadian group, which is actually looking at testing women for POL-E mutations if they have endometrial cancer and then potentially sparing them follow-up treatments such as radiotherapy to the pelvis. 
So I think that would be very important because as, as well as, you know, knowing who needs more treatment, we actually need to know who needs less treatment. That's a very nice nuanced point. And I think it's so interesting on the podcast, increasingly we're discussing genetic testing and how that profiling really informs the treatment options. But it's quite refreshing to hear someone talk about it offering less options in some respects rather than more, you know, more drugs, more more different treatments that, you know, are going to have an impact on quality of life. So that must be quite heartening. Yes. The other thing that we're doing as part of Anne's GOG is working on this initiative called EDEN, which is really trying to get more activity happening in the endometrial cancer space. Like historically, there was very little interest in the pharmaceutical industry or in doing drug trials in endometrial cancer because it was thought that most women were just cured with hysterectomy. But now as we're seeing, you know, more younger women and more people developing worse cancers, we've realised that there's more needing to be done. So Eden is really trying to get a group of interested multidisciplinary clinicians and researchers from Australia and New Zealand together and working in various different groups of all the aspects that we need to make progress on in endometrial cancer, you know, starting with prevention all the way through to treating relapse disease. So I'm very excited about Eden and we're certainly kind of at the stage of trying to submit some grants and maybe see if there's any philanthropic organisations would like to give us some support so that we can make further progress in this space. And is so Eden being coordinated by Anne Gog as well? Mm, it is, yes. Okay, that's yeah. fantastic. Do you feel that with the sort of increasing numbers, especially early onset at younger ages for younger women, that there is a sort of looming crisis and Eden perhaps is an answer that you can take some positive action. Yes, that's one of the reasons for setting it up because, you know, when Ansgog looked at our trial portfolio a few years ago, we had nothing really in endometrial cancer beyond that Portec 3 trial that I mentioned. And so it's a deliberate strategy to, you know, try and do more in what's making up half of gynecological cancer in Australia. And I think it's really something that we need to do more about. The other thing that I, I find really interesting, and I don't know the reason exactly for this, but there's no dedicated patient advocacy group for endometrial cancer in Australia, you know, like there is for breast cancer or prostate mm. cancer or, or indeed ovarian cancer. And yeah, I don't know for sure why that is. I wonder if it's because historically it's been a disease of older women who had their uterus removed and just wanted to get on with their life. But we also know, you know, there's probably some stigma associated with gynecological cancers and it, it's not always something that people want to talk about. Yes. A stigma can be very powerful and it can really shape and infiltrate all sorts of things like you say you know advocacy research funding and that brings me really nicely to my next question actually so we published a commentary recently on our website oncologynetwork.com.au by Sophie Rees from the University of Bristol in the UK and she wrote about how society's silence around vulval cancer means that people are missing the symptoms and that makes me think about whether Society is 
dangerously prudish when it comes to these gynecological cancers. And if you think that there is this sort of collective silence around endometrial cancer. Yes, unfortunately, I think that there is. I don't know whether people are prudish, but I think there's always been some kind of secrecy or people not wanting to talk about gynecological cancers or, you know, cancers down there, Mm. (laughs) as people say. And we do see, we see some horrible vulval cancers. Unfortunately, we saw them during the pandemic also, people that had had these tumours growing for a long time but didn't want to tell anyone about that. And I wonder if in, in part maybe it's also related to the fact that, you know, we know the HPV virus causes cervix cancer and, you know, there's a perception that maybe women's sexual activity cause them to develop the cancer and, and therefore they feel stigmatised because of that. And we certainly see that in our patients, some of whom come from very disadvantaged backgrounds and sometimes for those reasons they also haven't had things like pap smear screening or maybe vaccination. So it definitely is a problem. In endometrial cancer, not sure exactly, but you know the most common way that endometrial cancer presents is with some kind of abnormal vaginal bleeding. So it may be postmenopausal bleeding or bleeding between periods or around the time of change of life. And I think sometimes it can be really hard for you know women to know what's normal and what's not normal because we don't talk about that stuff, do we? And particularly through the change of life, people's periods often become abnormal. And so I sometimes see women, again, who maybe have had abnormal bleeding for quite some time mm. and they didn't really sort of think that it was abnormal. And then when they find out that it was, they feel bad, like somehow it's their fault that this happened. But obviously it's not. Yes, I think there's starting to be a shift in sort of public conversations around menopause and perimenopause. But I guess in some respects that can also counteract because if you're aware that some of the symptoms of that is irregular bleeding and then you might just think, oh, well, you know, maybe it's the change is is coming earlier for me than not. And it can be a great surprise. I personally, I was diagnosed perimenopause at 36, just four years after having my baby. And so it can feel like a really rapid timeline where it speeds up. And I get that it can be quite confusing. And, you know, it's something that I'm very happy to talk about because I think it's something that we should talk about because so many times, especially, you know, even other women, people say, oh, no, that can't be right. You know, you're too young. And it's like, no, it is right. Yeah, it can (laughs) definitely happen. Yeah, we have to have these conversations to kind of lift these veils of stigma and shame because the silence can be dangerous if it stops people being aware of what the symptoms can be. Yes. And I also think there's also a common sort of misconception that maybe pap smears can also detect endometrial cancer and ovarian cancer but in fact it it occasionally will but mostly it it can't it's not a way of screening for those other cancers so it's really important if, if people are concerned that they're you know having abnormal bleeding that they get that checked out yeah absolutely so last question are you hopeful for the future oh absolutely i mean I've loved working in medical oncology and it's been just an amazing time to be 
working in medical oncology and in gynecological cancer. We've just seen such fantastic advances, you know, with new medications and immunotherapy coming into treatment of many of the common cancers. We know, you know, we've got better at surgery, we've got better at radiotherapy. So I'm very hopeful for the future. Excellent. Thank you. So just before we wrap up, were there any other resources or organizations you might like to mention that listeners will find helpful if they'd like to find out more? Yes, well, definitely places like Cancer Australia have very good resources about endometrial cancer. You can also have a look on the Women Can website, which is our fundraising arm of ANSGOG that has some good information there. And there are some organisations that do actually offer some support to women with endometrial cancer, such as Counterpart in Melbourne. They sort of take anyone with gynaecological cancer. And obviously the cancer councils are a great resource. Excellent. Thank you. We'll include links to all of those organisations in the show notes. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us and unpack endometrial cancer for us and I hope you'll come back on the show and perhaps in a few years when you have the Adele trial results that'll be interesting to discuss in more detail too. Yeah that'll be fantastic. Excellent thank you so much. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast Experts on Point series brought to you by the Oncology Network. To hear more podcast episodes, head over to our oncology portal at www.oncologynetwork.com.au. Registration is free for healthcare professionals and will give you access to exclusive content and educational podcasts. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your colleagues and contact us if you have exciting research news to share with our listeners. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. <laughs>